to the left of Revelation. So in case you weren't here as we began this, uh, this next section last week, there is a pattern that is in the Gospels where Jesus, everywhere he went, he taught, he preached, he proclaimed. When you read the book of Acts, you see this same pattern that the apostles learned from Christ as he modeled that to them. From the very beginning of Acts to the very end of Acts in chapter 28, we see that they are doing exactly what Jesus had done. And now three decades into the life of the church, the church is wrestling with something, yes, from without. The heavy arm of Rome was persecuting Nero and and then eventually Domitian and Trajan give great persecution to the New Testament church, but there was a greater danger for the church three decades in, and that was from within the church, and that was the danger of false teaching and false doctrine infiltrating in the church. So last week, if you look with me there, in verse 3, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we talked last week, and I want to remind us this morning, that we are the beloved of God. God loves His people. He loves His children. And as God loves us, we are to embrace the pattern that we learn from Jesus and what we learn from the prophets and the apostles. This pattern. So therefore, Jude writes, God's loved people contend for the faith. This faith that was given to us is is not just faith of believing in Jesus, coming to salvation. But what Jude is emphasizing here is the faith that contains a set of beliefs, doctrines. Really important things that we cannot compromise on. And yet, three decades into the church, there was compromise already happening. And so Jude calls the church to contend for the faith because we are the beloved And this faith that has been given to us is a, Jude says, a once for all thing. We are not waiting for more revelation to be written down for us to know what to do. We have been given what we need. And so Jude settles that. This is a once for all thing that has been given. And then he says this, it has been given to the saints. This word in the Greek, given to the saints, is the idea of uh, my favorite race and track is the 4 by 400 I, It's always the last race of the meet or the Olympics. And I love watching that. It's that one lap around and handing the baton to someone else. And this is the idea here. It was something that was handed down and was to continue to be handed down. And praise the work of the Spirit. The reason we are in this room this morning, and for those of us who have faith in Christ... We have this relationship with Christ because people like us through the last 2,000 years have been faithful to pass the baton on. They've been faithful to proclaim the truth of Jesus and pass it on. And now in our generation, we are called to pass this on to the younger generation so that they will continue to do that. And so Jude is dealing with this. So um, I guess typical me, we weren't able to finish last, last week's sermon, so we've got to finish last week's sermon today. So I want to highlight five key things that Jude writes for us in the next verse 
that are characteristic of those who contend or put out false truth, false doctrine that is all around us today in many ways. We will highlight these things as we walk all the way through the rest of Jude, um, but I want to give them to you. They'll be up on the screen, and so if you're going to take notes, um, listen to this. For me, it's no surprise that Satan's great aim is to chip away at the truth, to bring cultures and churches and families and individuals to a place where they do not understand the teaching of the truth, what the truth actually is, and the doctrines we are supposed to embrace and believe. As a matter of fact, John writes this in his first epistle. He writes this in 1 John five nineteen. He says, we know we are from God. We have this relationship with God. And then he says this, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the church belongs to God, and yet the world in general out there lies in the hand and the power of the evil one. And and what Satan wants to do more than anything else is to steal away the truth so that eventually God's people would walk away from that and, and begin to see that God's word is not relevant and not so important, and yet we must do that. And so look with me in in verse 4, and let's, let's look at these principles. For Jude writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let me give you five things I think are really important, and then we're going to get on... Uh, to the next verse as he gives an illustration of what this looks like. Here's the first thing that's really important to notice about any kind of false teaching that would enter into um, the church. Not just a local church, but maybe a denomination, um, maybe a conference, maybe a movement, um, whatever the case may be. And here's the first one, is these kind of people sneak into the church and they settle down among true believers. And this is what Jude says here. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. This word of the Greek means this. It literally means to go into some place, sit down along someone, and begin to talk about things eventually to begin to have influence around those people. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And it's used of those who are against the true gospel. Now these people will use gospel words. They're on television this morning as we gather in this room. They will be on Christian television and other places using Christian words. And yet, likely, they will not even have a relationship with Christ. And so that's why John writes to us that we are to not believe everything that's out there, but we are to test the spirits to see if what is being communicated is true. This word um, was used in ancient Greece in their language when it was established of describing an outlaw that's been kicked out of the country and comes back into the country in a sly way. It was also used by the Greeks to describe someone who began to undermine the the goodness of the nation by speaking subversive things against righteous laws and good laws. And this happens and takes place in the church. We are seeing this today in the church in this way, one really clear way. 
Our culture has been redefining the definition of the family for quite a while now. This has begun to drift into the church where you are seeing churches now even speak of that two homosexual women can be married and we can call that marriage. And the scripture says that that's not the case. And this redefinition of the family and this redefinition of marriage comes from um, Satan himself. It is part of the lie to chip away again at the foundation of societies. I, I remind everyone in the room this morning, the foundation of a society, the foundation of a church, yes, is Jesus. But when you step from that, it's the family, the next step that's really key. And so churches become very strong churches when the families are strong. Denominations are strong when they embrace true, right doctrine and stand there and speak about it. And yet we, we have a reality in our nation today where that there has been those that have, have snuck into the church and are redefining things that for 2,000 years the church has not embraced. And so Jude is wanting us to know this is the case about those. They come in some side door with an agenda and they settle in right beside those in the church. In case you don't remember it, let me remind you, Jesus described these people as well in John chapter 10. This is what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the front door, but climbs in, climbs in, sneaks in, Another way, that person, Jesus said, is a thief and a robber. So Jesus and Jude are warning us to be on the lookout for those who enter. Secondly, Jude says this was predicted long ago. This is not something new. This has been around in the Old Testament times, and it was present in the New Testament time. And he said, who long ago, these people were designated or called out, named, for this condemnation. This word designated here is a Greek word that means this. It means to put public, they should do this back in the day, um, even particularly in Europe and I think even early days of America, in, in the city square they would put up these postings, warnings and different things about, about things to be aware of about certain people or certain things. This was also used back in ancient Greece uh, where a father would have a son that had become an adult and he had squandered certain things and he owed a lot of money to a bunch of different people, the father would go to the town square and he would post, I am the father of so-and-so and I am not responsible for their debts. They are responsible for the debts. So what Judah's saying here is, from a long time ago, from the prophets and now the apostles and now the New Testament church, it has been posted, it's been designated, it's been put up to say this, this is going to happen and take place. There's going to be this kind of false teaching. Now, this is not going to be on the screen. But let me just give you three quick things to note that are happening, I think, today's day and time that we ought to be aware of um, around us, signs to look for. Here's one of them. It's a big movement right now, particularly among the younger generation of pastors, as there's been a tremendous aspect and emphasis on God's love. Now, let me, sometimes I feel like I have to clarify things. I'm for God's love. Are you? I am. 
But we cannot speak of God's love in such a way that there's no boundaries to God's love. Grace has boundaries. Grace isn't just licensed to do whatever you want to do. And you will hear today, coming particularly in some more of the younger generation, a heavy emphasis on the humanity of Jesus and a less emphasis on the deity of Jesus. Listen, I remind us, he was 100% man, and at the same time, he was 100% God. And, and, and that aspect of his deity must always be emphasized. If he's just a man who was nice and kind and did good things, then what are we doing this morning? But if he was 100% man and he was 100% God, then he deserves all of our devotion, all of our attention, all of our passion. And so you'll hear that today. Here's a second thing that you need to watch out for, and it's language about the Holy Spirit. There's a big movement out there that just emphasized the Holy Spirit as an entity, kind of a force, an energy, a power. And yes, he is a power. He is behind the resurrection of Jesus. But there's a de-emphasis on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. We are to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is God. We are to honor Him and to exalt Him and to worship Him. And so we must be aware of the language that's being used about the Holy Spirit. Here's a third thing that you ought to note and and I ought to note. And that is a strong emphasis. And this is a really dangerous one. And this is rampant everywhere and particularly in, in the more charismatic circles of Christianity. And that is a strong emphasis on the prophetic word that people speak as having almost an equality with what the prophets have written down. Um, And so you'll hear this. I have a word from the Lord. And I'm not denying today at all, please don't hear that, I'm not denying today at all that God cannot give us a word about a situation in our life or place upon our heart a burden about someone and we may not even know something about that and we can reach out to them. God God does that, right? He does that. He puts those convictions, those things. But there is not today prophetic words being spoken that come to the place where they are equal with this book. Every prophetic word must find its authority and not authority but it must match this it cannot be it it will not be greater than this and so you'll hear those three things and so i just caution us again in 2023 there will be a new movement in american christianity and people will flock to it some new book is going to come out and and i'm not saying don't read it i'm just saying this have discernment church have discernment so that we know what's going on. So Jude writes, they, they sneak in, they come in another way, they climb in, and they settle down among true believers. Secondly, this was predicted long ago, that they would have this role and they would do it. Thirdly, Jude says, they are ungodly people. That's how he describes them. This word ungodly in the Greek is a word that means this, to have no interest at all in the things of God. Now think about this. These are people within the church, within denominations, who have movements, who write books, who have conferences. And and Jude would say, and the Bible would be clear, that they're ungodly people and yet they use Christianese. 
They know how to speak it. They know how to write it. They know how to push the right buttons. And all of these things. And, and, and Jude says these are the kind of people who ultimately really honestly says they have no interest in having anything to do with God. They are empty of any of kind of all of God except a condemnation um, kind of underhanded toward him if you listen closely. Here's the fourth thing that Jude says. They aim to alter the message of the gospel of grace. He says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. As I said a while ago, grace is not something that is without boundaries. It has boundaries. And this false teaching that was happening in Jude's day, it's happening in our day and time to do as well, is something that, that leads things to turn into a license for immorality, not godliness. And Jude says these people are not concerned with the well-being of the church. The gospel ultimately is secondary to what they want for themselves as leaders. They make the gospel, here, let me give you an example, they make the gospel more fleshly by saying that the gospel is about walking with God and he's going to bless you and you're going to get more money. So that will satisfy our ego or some empty aspect in our lives or you are going to get a greater reputation if you walk with Jesus. It's this idea of appealing, things appealing to the flesh. And that's out there all the time. It's, I'm shocked. <clears throat> this is my role. And so my role is to, to know what's going on out there and, and to warn us occasionally along the way. Um, but you see this um, all the time out there. Speaking people saying this, that you are the master in Christian circles. You are the master of your own destiny. I hope not. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that my trust has to be in Doak Taylor. I know how desperate I need Jesus. And I know that you do as well. These people, Jude says, they want to change the message of God's grace. His great favor, his great design that is poured out over people. They want Christianity to end up being about selfish desires and fulfilling your own uh, destiny and adjusting to the ways of the times. I just remind us this morning, the Bible needs no adjusting. It needs no adjusting. And so this word here, he says, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality is a Greek word that just means licentiousness. It describes those who abuse God's grace in regard to sexual situations and perspectives. And the Bible is pretty clear on its perspective of sexual ethics and what we are to do in our lives. And, and you will see that there's a big ignoring in some certain circles of evangelical land in regard to sexual immorality. Some of these people will know what the Bible actually says about that and just be okay with ignoring it. Here's the last one. Jude says, be aware of these. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They ultimately say no to God at every turn. So before we move to the next verse and look at this illustration that Jude wants us to see, let me just say a couple of more things here. Apostates, those who apostate is someone who turns away from God to follow their own ways or something else, or one who used to give great affirmation to Jesus, or they may be someone who, who as Judas describes here, they just remain in and around the church. And yet, 
they have an underhandedness to them to not be true to the gospel. So Jude is saying here, apostates don't necessarily leave the church. They leave the truth. That's the sign that you can see. They want to change and pervert the truth. They know how to blend in and have selfish agendas. And I believe that inside the umbrella of what we call church, there are forms of apostasy that are around us. Apostate teaching is seen in a church when there is teaching in a ministry or in that church that says this, there is another authority other than Scripture that, we are, that is to guide us. You hear that, you run. You hear that, listen closely. There is not another authority that is to guide us but the authority of the Scripture. Secondly, if there is any kind of denial of who Jesus is and the work that he did and taking away from who he is as our great high priest and the Savior and Lord and all of that, you can begin to spot this false teaching. It's kind of like this. There are forms of this sometimes in certain places. There is a teaching in Roman Catholicism to pray to Mary and to the saints to intercede for you. Well, that just goes completely against the book of Hebrews that affirms that there is only one who does that work, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we listen well. and We are to know the truth so that we can discern the reality of these things. So there are other places that give great affirmation of this. Paul, if you remember in the first chapter to the, to the Galatian churches, he says, if anybody comes to you and tells you another gospel, you, they're cursed. That is not what they are to be about. And so you don't listen t- to that. John in his second small letter, this one page letter that we read um, several weeks ago, just turn to the left for a second right there from Jude. Go to Second John. And I want to show you what he says in verse 10 and 11 about how careful we need to be about those in our lives who are speaking things. 2 John chapter 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked Works And John was dealing with those that are saying things falsely and contrary to the true testimony about who Jesus is. And so we are the kind of people who are careful of those who are in our lives. Now what's going to happen now is this. We're going to take the next three weeks, including today, And we're going to deal with three individual examples that Jude uses to give example of what apostasy looks like, this turning away from God. Today he's going to do, um, I love this story, such truth in it. Today he's going to give us the example of when the 12 spies went into the land to spy it out and they came back and 10 of them are like, yeah, I know God's promised we can have the land, but 10 of them are like, we, we can't have the land. And two of them are like, yes, we can have the land. God told us, and we can go in and we can take it. And they, they apostatize themselves, and we'll look at that here in just a moment. Next week, he talks about apostate angels that left their domain 
These are the ones that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. In Noah's generation that have been locked away and we're going to deal with that. And I may push that. I may, I may, I think God's okay with this. I've been praying about it. I think he is. Um, And then the third example is, uh, this is, I'll I'll clarify that statement here in a second. Third example is that we are seeing in our country today, and that's the apostasy of Sodom and Gomorrah about sexuality. And I may do that one next week, just to give you a heads up, because the next week is when the kids are in here, and and I want to talk to the elders about that. I'm not afraid of talking to the kids, but I'm going to be very, very honest about the sexual perversion in our culture. Uh, it won't be graphic, I promise, as well. But I, I want to be clear about the truth because I, I, I want to remind you that 2,000 years ago, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he led you to write this letter about homosexuality. And here we are in 2023. Guess what we are dealing with? Same issue. So um, so let's talk about this. I, wanna, I want you to go now to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. And we're going to begin to kind of walk through this. I was asked last week, should I give and use specific examples uh, in my sermons about people and places and who are teaching false things? And my short and long answer is yes. And here's why. The Bible is the revelation of God, of himself to us, and it is full of stories, specific stories of people and groups of people by name who did great things for God and they are honored for the great things that they did. And and it's also full of stories of people who sinned greatly and were called out for that sin. We listen, folks, we can't bury our head in the sands. Are you with me on that? We just and, 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 and for me to just speak in generic terms and for sometimes not to say, we, we need to hear what's being said and, and, and who's saying it so that we are fully equipped about these things. The Bible practiced this. The prophets did it. Jesus did it. He said to the Pharisees, you are Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. He told them that they were of, not his father, but they were of their own father, who was the devil. And so, so we speak the truth when it's applicable and we must do that. So Jude says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he, he says these words, I want to remind you of something that's really important. You've been taught it. We believe Jude's writing to Jewish Christians who are wrestling with things they are hearing now about Jesus, about discipleship and their sanctification. And so Jude reminds them, you have been taught this by myself and likely others, stories from our past of people in the Old Testament who apostatized, turned away from God, embraced their own thinking and their own ideas, And so I want to remind you of something that you already know. Sometimes in the battle, we all know this, that we are in the battle for truth and it gets kind of heavy and sometimes it gets kind of heavy and and life gets stressful and life gets busy that we need reminding. 
We need to be reminded of what is true so that in the distractions of life, we come back to what's true. And so that's what Jude is doing here. He's going to give three examples in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7 of examples in the Old Testament of apostasy. So by the way, listen to this. Please hear this. said this years ago. There was a famous pastor in Atlanta who said, we need to unhitch our lives from the Old Testament and just be about the New Testament. I want to show you that Jude, the Lord's half-brother, writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, uses three Old Testament examples for New Testament application. The Old Testament is really important, absolutely important, for us to learn about what God has for us. So, did you note there, who saved the people out of Egypt? It's, it's the biggest name that the church is about. What's his name? Jesus. That's what Jude wrote. He said, I want to remind you that there was an enslaved people in Egypt, and they were rescued from their slavery, and they were led out of that, Jude writes, by Jesus. Now, some of your translations um, may say the Lord that's an emphasis and recognition that Jesus is the Lord. Um, I'm an ESVer. I think it's a great text that's true to the original Greek. Um, and they use the name Jesus. So Jesus, watch, brings the people out of slavery, leading them where? Where are they going from Egypt? They're going to where? The promised land. So he gets them over a period of months, and they gripe and complain along the way about it's hot out here, we don't have any meat, we need bread, we don't have water. And they murmur and complain, and yet he brings them to the brink of the promised land. They can see it in the distance. God has said, I'm giving this to you. And then they said, well, can we send some spies into the land so that we can kind of see what's happening and going on? And God when you look at another text, is okay with them to go and do that. Now, as they go into the land, I want to make this emphasis, and I'll make it several times today. They weren't to go into the land to decide whether or not they were going to go into the land. That's not why they were sent into the land. God had already said, I promise this to Abraham. You are Abraham's descendants. It's been 400 years since I promised Abraham that this land would be for my people. And so now Jesus is leading them out of Egypt. He brings them to the brink of the promised land. The 12 spies go in. 10 of them come back and go, we can't do this. Two of them are like, yeah, we can do this. And what we will see here is apostasy, a lack of belief and a lack of trust in what God has said. So look at me, Deuteronomy Chapter 1, go to verse 19. We're going to do a lot of reading now, so hang with me here. So Moses is speaking here. He said, then we set out from Horeb and went through all of that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw. And on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill, country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God, listen to the language, is giving us. See, the Lord our God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, 
as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then all of you came near me and said, verse 22 is really critical. Three things they say here. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us. Here's the second thing. And that they would bring us word again of the, of the third thing, of the way in which we may go up in the cities in which we shall come. So Moses says, the thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up to the hill country and came to the valley of Eschol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us, brought evidence of it visual evidence and they brought us word again and said it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us and yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you murmured in your tents and said because the Lord hated us he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us crazy thinking Crazy talking. God has never said that. All he has said to them, I, you are my people. I'm leading you. Trust me. And I'm giving you this land. And now they're like, all God wants to do is just give us to these people called the Amorites. Read it again, 27. You murmur in your tents because the Lord hated us and because he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. What an exaggeration. There wasn't a city that's ever gone up to heaven. But when you're fearful, you exaggerate things. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there, these giants, these tall people. And then I said to you, Do not dread or be afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night, in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. Now, we're going to have these up on the screen. Just write these down real quick, and we're going to move on to the next aspect of things. Here's the problem. It's verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now, God allows them to do this, but they want, watch this, they would rather now at this time in their life have the leadership of men rather than the leadership of God. So verse 22 tells us, here's the three things that they want. Send men, fallen men, fearful men, weak men, men who don't have courage. Send those men before us so that they will spy out the land. God had been guiding them this whole time. His evidence was present on this day. What could they do when they looked in the sky? What would they see during the daytime? A cloud. What did they see at nighttime? A pillar of fire. God's presence was still communicating to them. And they're like, we can't go in there. God's presence was there. 
And yet they're like, no, we, we don't want God's leadership anymore. We'd rather have men lead us. Secondly, and we want those men to go in and we want them to bring us word about what it's like, where we ought to go and give a description of the people that are there. God had been speaking to them and reminding them over and over and over of his great aim to fulfill the promise to Abraham and to give them this land in their generation. Listen, folks, we cannot say this. I want God to move, but I will not trust him. Those things don't go together. And this is the people there. So that I send men before us, have the men bring us word about the land. God had already told them about the land. It was flowing with what? He had already told them that there were people there and that he was going to give it to them. Here's the third thing. They wanted men to tell them how to proceed. And in all three instances, it was not enough for what God had said he would do for them. God was not enough. They wanted to trust the men who spied out the land. And yet God had already had a plan for what they were going to do, how they would go in and they would take the land. Listen, folks. The people of God are to be God-centered in every kind of way. Man-centered focus fosters lives of fear, doubt, and forgetfulness. That's all that it will do. And we have leaders at the church. We We have great leaders at the church. I love our elders. They think about things biblically. They want to make sure that we are headed that way. But I want to remind you that We are all followers of King Jesus. He's the master leader. And if I ever go sideways, you know what your responsibility is? To bring me back right ways. And if I don't want to listen to that counsel and I want to do my own thing, then then you as a body have to step into that. We have this responsibility. We want Jesus to guide us. We will have people who will lead as under shepherds, as the scripture teaches. But there was a problem here with the spies. Ten of them came back and said, it is absolutely impossible for us to take this land. And they turned just about every adult in the nation into believing that God was not able. So I want you to go to Numbers chapter 13 now. And we're going to look there. It's another perspective of all of this, but it's an important perspective. Numbers 13. So the land of Canaan is is within sight. And I want to emphasize it again in case we might miss it. God didn't say that he might give them the land. He said that he was giving them the land. I'm going to give this to you. Now, the purpose of sending the spies into the land, again, was not for them to decide whether or not they were going to go in or they could handle going in to take the land. God said, I'm giving it to you. Trust me, I'm giving it to you. I've been guiding you, and if you'll trust me, I'll continue to guide you. And yet they refused to step in. He was allowing them there at Kadesh Kadesh Barnea to get a glimpse of the promise that God had made to Abraham. So God is going to lead them. 
But they were also going to have to face the people that were there in the land. Now hear this. This has great application today. The fact that God was giving it to them did not mean that it was going to be easy, right? Yes, I'm giving this to you. But there are people there. These are their homes, their cities, their walls. They're not going to just go, here it is. We've been building this for you for 400 years. We've been waiting for you to come. No, the walls of Jericho had to come down eventually. And there was going to be a battle in this. So look at me in Numbers 13.1. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Go to verse 17 now. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go into the Negev, go up to the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether there are many, few or many, whether the land that they may dwell in is good or bad, or whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. We should notice... Again here, that Moses is not telling them that their job is to go in and see whether or not it's the right timing to enter into the land or whether they should enter into the land. This was already given because God had promised it. Listen, church, look right here. His word on every matter is always enough. So if God calls us to pray through something and prepare. And yet it's pretty clear what God's word is about an issue. We need to not see all the obstacles. We need to just trust what God says, right? We trust what God says. And so they kind of seem to have the idea of what the case was for them. So is it spiritual to study something before getting into it? Some people would say they should have just gone up and done what they needed to do. Well, not necessarily. God there, Numbers 13, 1 says that they could do this. They could go up there. But it should not ever be when God has clearly spoken on something for us to decide whether or not we're going to do what God has clearly spoken on something. We just do it. We make decisions by faith. We should always keep a discerning mind, wisdom, faith, trust in who God is not knowing what may come. So 12 men are chosen. They are men who stood out in their generation. I want you to hear this. They stood out in their generation among the 12 tribes. I want you to hear this. There are Christians who stand out, and then there are Christians who have a deep-centered faith in God, and there's a difference between the two. You've got 12 men who stood out to be men that loved God, were warrior kind of men. They go into the land and over a period of 40 days have convinced themselves that God is not able. All 12 of them should have come back and said, yes, we can do this. Not because we're great, but our God is great. And so our faith is going to rest in who He is. And so the spies return and 
They report. Look at Numbers 13, 25. So at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. They showed them the fruit of the land. 27. And they told him, We came to the land in which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. I'm going to stop there. We'll get to 28 here in a second. 40 days is a consistent theme throughout the scripture. It rained 40 days and nights with Noah. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and nights. Israel was at the foot of that mountain for 40 days and nights and built a golden calf in the midst of that. Goliath challenged the army of God for 40 days in the morning and in the afternoon twice a day. The army of God heard Goliath challenge them for 40 straight days. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached in Nineveh for 40 days. And yet 40 days, it says there, and Nineveh shall be overthrown and the city repented. Jesus fasted how many days? 40. Listen to this. Do not miss this. If our steps are not grounded deeply in Jesus, we will return from 40 days either crushed or courageous. That's what will happen. 40 days will either ruin our faith or they will raise it to a new place and a new freshness. So 26, it says they came to Moses and and Aaron and they said, look, it's exactly what you said. And now look at 28. That first word there, what does your say? However. Watch out for howevers. They are absolutely destructive to our faith. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and they're large. And besides, we saw these tall people. They're the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell there and he, he goes on and he talks about all those things. Listen, the however's in our lives, we've got to be careful. We are called to be people of great faith. And there may be some howevers, but the howevers cannot rob us of our vision and our trust that God is great and that God is able. These howevers can overwhelm us and keep us from trusting God. And so 10 of the 12 returned paralyzed by fear. And speaking this, the promise of God is impossible. I know what he said to Abraham 400 years ago. But Abraham couldn't have seen what this was going to be like now. We will see things in our lives either as obstacles or opportunities, depending on the kind of faith that we have. Ten of them saw everything before them as obstacles. Those 40 days made them lose their faith. And so in verses 28 and 29, I'm not going to read it. He watched. It's like they took out a piece of paper like we do and they made lists they made lists to do lists are good going grocery shopping for this to do lists about faith is not good 
So they made their list of why they couldn't go in. Look, everybody, look. I wrote it down. I know God is speaking God and writing God, but but look what I wrote down. I'm an eyewitness of that land. And yet God in Genesis 12 said, I'm going to make you a people, a family, a nation that's going to bless every nation on the planet. Beware of making lists of things that God cannot do. Because those lists will become overwhelming. And I believe it's very easy to live and convince ourselves of what cannot happen based on our lists. Do you know that you could fill the front side of this? And I've got my sermon book here with all of my sermons in it. And I could give us this. And we could list, we could probably spend the rest of today listing why, we sh- why life is just too hard and we can't really trust God. And yet that's not the call of Christianity. We are to trust. We could fill up this whole book and God still may say, yeah, I see all the obstacles. I I got your list. But I want you to do it anyway. Even though you've got your book full of why you can't do it. Now I'm going to get it all up in your grill, okay? Is everybody ready for this? So I, I really don't mean it mean. I love you, and so I'm going to speak truth to you. This June, we're having a family mission trip. Can I tell you what the last words that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven? He said, go. So I want to encourage you to not make a list of how you can't go on the family mission trip in June. Now, you may not be able to go, and that that will be God-ordained that you can't go. But I just want to encourage you to not make a list that's grounded in human perspective. Just get alone with God and say, God, do I have the vacation time? Should we go as a family? And to pray about it. So again, if you don't sign up in two weeks, the deadline, you're not going to get an email. I'm not going to think any less than you. I I just love you enough to say this to you. To quit living by human lists. And live by faith. Because I think a lot of times we convince ourselves that God's not in something when we've never allowed God to even speak into that something. And that can be a number of different things. So they just see obstacles. All they could see were giants. Not everybody in the land were giants. Just a small group of people. And yet they have convinced themselves of this. Look at verse 31. But your little ones whom you said would become prey, I will bring in. I I want to go back 26. Go to 26. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old upward, upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephthunah and Joshua the son of Nun. 
But your little ones whom you said would become a prey to all these people, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. This is where he's calling them out for their apostasy. They're turning away from God. But as for you, your dead bodies, they shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness. Listen to the consequences of their apostasy. Now not for 40 days, but for how long? 40 years shall suffer for your faithfulness. Your little ones are going to suffer suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's been a lot of speaking Spies speaking, Moses speaking, Joshua and Caleb speaking, the people speaking. The only speaking that matters is when God speaks. And so he says, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end and they shall die there. The taking of the land was never going to be about their stature. It was going to be about God's greatness and God's promise. And I tell you, these fears can enter into our lives of faith. They can be found in our families, in our churches, and even in our own hearts. And we must overcome them. For if we don't, they will devour us like the ten came to believe. And I tell you this morning that it is a dangerous thing. Hear this. If you question God's goodness much in your life, I want to warn you about that. It is a dangerous thing to bring a bad report about something that God has declared as good and that he is going to do and to speak of it now badly. He had promised this 400 years before. He had promised this, that he was going to give them this land as they come out of Egypt. And in humility, we are to make ourselves less and we are to trust what God has said. Go to chapter 14 now of Numbers. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron the whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they began to talk to one another and said, let's choose a leader. And boy, how unrealistic is this? And let's go back to Egypt where they've lost all of their firstborn sons. Surely they're just going to open up the cities and say, y'all come on back. We'll give you your old jobs and your places once again. Verse five. Now let's stop there. Listen. We must be broken over the right things, not the wrong things. 
And the congregation on that night, the whole nation, that's the picture. They're in their tents and they are weeping. It's a state of mourning. It should have been a night of rejoicing. We are here. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is going to be ours and our generation. Let's go in. Let's trust God. Our God is able. And they're crying during the night. And if they just opened up their tent, where I guarantee you inside their tent, what could they have seen the glow of? The fire at night. That God was still with them. He was present. And I wondered what Joshua and Caleb talked about during the night. As a whole nation, listen to that, a whole nation had lost their way. Why were they mourning? Well, listen, this will sound familiar. It's kind of the brand of Christianity, except for a remnant throughout the last 2,000 years. They're crying because it wasn't going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. They were mourning because God wasn't just going to let them go in and they weren't going to have to face anything. Do you remember Jesus Christ? Do you all remember Jesus Christ? He died on a cross. He was beaten, spat upon, his beard pulled out. Why do we think that this life just should be guaranteed to be easy? They feel this way. They're mourning because they're blaming God and they were resentful toward him. They're blaming him for their problem instead of recognizing we have just been rescued out of slavery, and we're going to enter into the promise made to Abraham. They're mourning and weeping at night, listen to this, because they placed feelings over faith. I tell you, emotions are God-given. I love, most of the time I love my emotions. Emotions are God-given, but they are not the fuel for faith. They won't. I'm guessing you're like me, I can wake up feeling good and at 1.37 p.m. in the afternoon, I can get an email that will devastate me and my emotions are crushed. I need something stronger to fuel my faith than my feelings. Their mourning allowed their feelings to dictate how they saw the situation instead of trusting in God. And listen to this one. They saw the situation as loss instead of gain. If we go into the promised land, this is loss. Look at all the tall people. We're just grasshoppers. How in the world can this come about? And and so they've convinced themselves, watch, that the promise of God to Abraham, that God is now giving them, that they can see with their eyes the promised land. That's not gain. It's loss. It has always been a narrow narrowly traveled road. Jesus told us, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy but that one leads to destruction and those who enter it are many but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those that find it are few. Oh, they grumble against God, they grumble against Moses and Aaron And they have an unhealthy longing 
for the past. There are two days that we cannot do anything about. Tomorrow and yesterday. But there is something that can be done today in the moments that we're living in to trust God and to walk with him in faithfulness. They question God's sovereign leadership and they embrace unrealistic and false answers. Now I want to close with this. That's depressing. After 400 years, after being rescued, almost as if Jude is saying, gosh, people that's been rescued out of slavery, you'd think they would have been grateful and said, hey, Savior, wherever you want us to go, whatever you want us to do, we're with you, we're with you. But I want to close with a picture of what authentic faith looks like. So we've just seen what an apostate turning away from God, faith looks like. Let me give you a couple principles of what strong faith looks like. Look at verse 5 of chapter 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of God. I want to submit this morning that it is time for 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 80-year-olds, that the consistent practice of our life is in a chaotic lack of faith land that we live in to consistently fall on our face in submission before God. Look at verse 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. The faithful's heart for God falls in humble submission and their heart breaks over the right things, not the wrong things. So they tear their clothes. Look at verse 7. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Here's what they're saying. We would agree. We have faith in God's promise. We, we yeah, I know the ten have, have said this. We also were there. Listen to us. We can't wait to get into the land that God has promised us. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's believe that God is able. Yes, there will be challenges. But we believe God is able. And let's walk in the rest that comes connected to His promises. And so they agree with God's promise that it's good land and they Trusted God. Look at 8 and 9. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and He will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Here's why. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Look at 10. Then all the congregation said, let's stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Joshua and Caleb teach us, Moses, 
that God's people fall in submission before him. Their heart breaks over biblical things, right things. They agree with God's promise that's in his word. And they know that obedience matters. That's why they say here, let's don't rebel against what God has called us to and what we are supposed to be about. And then watch, when the, there, a whole nation of people have got stones and they want to kill their leaders, God just comes down and says, no, not today. Not today. I'm going to protect my remnant. And his glory comes. And then in verses 11 through 19, we don't have time to read it. They plead, God says, these people, these people, these people. What is wrong with these people? And they plead with God, grounded in his nature and in his word, and say, and just plead with God that he would continue to be with them and lead them into the promised land. That's the kind of heart that I think our land is needing today. We've had enough of the other, right? We've had enough 10 spies life. It's time to have a life like Joshua and Caleb. Well, let me just read this. The Cowboys don't play till five or so or something, so we got plenty of time. How costly was their apostasy? An entire generation of people, age 40 and above, died. Some guy did, in my research, map this out based on what we believe, how many Jews were in the wilderness. And if you mapped out the days that they had there in a 12-hour time frame, there would have been 80 to 85 funerals every day for 40 years, seven per hour until that entire generation died out. If you don't think God takes apostasy serious, go read this story again. Well, there's a beautiful thing here, and I just want to read it, and I'm going to show you a short, real short video clip, and we'll finish. Just listen to this. After 40 years, they came into the land... And in Joshua 14, 6, then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know that the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. And yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore to me on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, this is Caleb speaking, the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word, word to Moses. He's 85 now, Caleb is. While Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, on this day I'm 85 years old. 
And I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is my strength was then for war and for going and coming. And listen to what he says here. He says, I would like a certain part of the promised land. Would you give it to me? So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakin, the giants, these giant people were there with their great fortified cities. It may be the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. And at age 85, you know what Caleb did? He went to where the giants were and he ran them out of town. Guess what Joshua and Caleb had to do? Who responded rightly. They didn't get to go start First Baptist Church of Joshua Caleb. They had to walk with those people for 40 years. For 40 years. They didn't get to separate themselves. And I think what we need today is a call back to being warriors contending for the faith for God. So there's a guy who was a basketball coach at Temple University back when I was growing up. I was always kind of fascinated. He was always kind of a fiery man. His name was John Chaney. And I don't know a whole lot about him, but he seemed to be be a man of integrity, great impact upon his family. He died a number of years ago. And his grandson is speaking at his funeral. And I want to show you this clip. I think it's just a minute and 20 seconds. And I want you to listen to what he has to say here because there's great spiritual application for us. I had a conversation with a friend one day. And we was talking about family and life. And I asked him, how do you see your kid's future? And he said to me, My grandfather walked 10 miles to work every day. My father walked five. I'm driving a Cadillac. My son is in a Mercedes. Said my grandson will be in a Ferrari. But he said my great grandson will be walking again. So I asked him, I said, well, why is that? And he said to me, Tough times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create tough times. He said to me, many will not understand, but you have to raise warriors. That's what coach instilled in me and so many like me. The strength and courage of a warrior. I just want to honestly this morning say to us that I think the call is clear that there's a reason we're studying the book of Jude and it is not to embrace culture. It is to embrace the glory of the church that Christ established by his blood. And it's time to quit playing around with this. It's time to take it serious. So every student in the room, you need to take your faith serious. You don't know how to make that happen. We love you students. You know that. We'll meet with you. I'll meet with you every day at Sonic. I can't buy it every day for you, but I'll meet with you. 
And I'll tell you about the glory of Jesus that he's worth walking with. Listen, the church has fallen apart in our country today because of a lack of making Jesus the center of the preaching. And we must make Jesus the center of the preaching again. And I can't and you can't do anything about a church outside of that, but we can do something about this place. And that we can take it serious about this place, that it's not about comfort, but it's about walking with God and knowing the glory of God by walking in obedience and that it's worth it, that at every word that God communicates to us comes for the goodness of his heart. And so it is worth it, that there's blessing connected to it. And so Jude writes this again at the end, uh, three decades into the church, he's calling God's people to contend for the faith, the one true gospel. Are y'all with me? This is, I think now, the critical need in our culture today is for judgment to begin once again at the house of God that God's people would take serious their faith. Let's pray.